The Easter message is a message of hope. It's a reminder that God is alive and that he's at work in the lives of his people. Today, we join hundreds of thousands of other believers all over the world as we gather to worship our risen Savior. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself in the Gospel of John. We've heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. All of these I am statements teach us more about who Jesus is as our Messiah, our Savior, and our Lord. Today, we're going to hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a truth that the world desperately needs to hear, and a truth that all believers need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded about how God can bring life in the midst of life's storms, and how there's grace, forgiveness, and salvation in Jesus' name. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus often proclaimed his identity and his purpose, With each of these I am statements, he affirmed both of these things. His identity, he is God. And his purpose, he came into the world to save sinners and to make disciples who could make more disciples. John recorded these statements and other details about Jesus' life and ministry so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. A short time before his own death and resurrection, Jesus made this statement about himself. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. As followers of Jesus, we cling to these words. This is a promise that we can and should build our lives on. As we continue our series, I'd like to unpack this amazing I am statement. In John chapter 11, we read about the death and resurrection of another person, Lazarus. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were close friends of Jesus. Raising Lazarus from the dead was an event that turned the religious establishment fatally against Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 53, this is a verse towards the very end of the passage. It says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So it was no longer about trying to trap Jesus and about turning his followers against him. Instead, the religious leaders wanted him dead. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, tells us about the events that led to this kind of response. Now, this is a long chapter, so I'll summarize what happened. I want to encourage you to go back and read all of John chapter 11 if you have the opportunity today. Lazarus was sick, so his sisters sent a messenger to tell Jesus about what was going on. Now, God's word tells us that Jesus loved this family. They were close friends of his, and he would stay with them when he was in Bethany. That's where they lived. Jesus was only about 20 miles away from Bethany. So if the messenger traveled fast enough, he could have made the trip within a day. After hearing about Lazarus's condition, Jesus sent the messenger back to Bethany with this message. John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. After giving this message to the messenger, Jesus decided to stay put. He decided to stay right where he was at for two more days. After the two days had passed, he told his disciples that he was ready to go to the region of Judea, which is where Bethany was located. 
Lazarus died shortly after his sisters had sent the messenger to Jesus. By the time Jesus made it to Bethany, Lazarus would have been dead for four days. When the messenger arrived back home, he would have heard the news about Lazarus' death. And you have to wonder what the people were thinking when he first shared Jesus' message with them, that this sickness will not end in death. The Jewish people typically buried their loved ones on the same day that they died, or no more than a day later. So Lazarus was already in the tomb when they heard Jesus' message. It's important to highlight that the last time Jesus and his disciples were in Judea, people tried to stone them. The disciples actually mentioned this to Jesus. They brought it back up as if he didn't already know. And they voiced their concern about going back. They were afraid for their lives. After Jesus decided that they would be traveling back to Bethany, Thomas, one of the disciples, said, Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was convinced that by going back, they would also be killed. So this was not a safe trip. Jerusalem was less than two miles from Bethany. And we read about how a lot of people came to see Mary and Martha and to comfort their family. When Jesus and the disciples finally arrived, Martha was the first person to meet them just outside the village. Mary, on the other hand, decided to stay home. You know, we all deal with pain, suffering, and loss differently. When you lose a loved one, God doesn't expect you to just get over it, but he does promise to help you get through it. During times of loss, God wants to minister to us through his word and through the comforting words of his people. Jesus had sent a promise to these two sisters, comforting words, and now he would discover how they received it. John chapter 11, verses 21 and 22 reveals the first words out of Martha's mouth. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. If you go back to the original Greek, the first part of what she said almost sounds like an accusation or an indictment of a God who did not answer their prayers. Later on, when Mary finally decided to come out of the house and see Jesus, she said a similar thing. She said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Regardless of how hard we try, Anytime we grieve the loss of a loved one, it's hard to avoid words like, if only. If only I would have visited more often. If only she hadn't gotten in the car. If only I had said I love you more. It's human nature to respond in the way these two sisters initially did. While there was a tone of accusation in Martha's words, there was also evidence of faith. She was quick to affirm her faith in Jesus by saying, But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus responded by saying, your brother will rise again. And then he gave his fifth I am statement. This is the context leading up to this statement. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? After hearing this amazing statement, Martha said, Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. So lack of faith was not the problem for Martha. She believed that this life is not all there is, and she affirmed her faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But while she believed that Jesus is who he says he is, she was still grieving the loss of her brother. 
next. It looks like everyone who was there was grieving and crying. The Bible says that Martha was crying, that Mary was crying, and the other people who had traveled from Jerusalem to be with them, they were also crying. Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Even though Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, something got to him. Then you get to verse 35. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. Many commentators say it's the deepest verse in the Bible. It says that Jesus wept. I think Jesus' prayer just before raising Lazarus from the dead gives us insight into what was going on. John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42 says, So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This was a very special and unique prayer. Nowhere else in scripture had Jesus prayed with an over-the-shoulder audience in mind. When you read it, it kind of sounds like he was connecting with his heavenly father and connecting with the people all at the same time. At this very moment, Jesus seemed aware of his dual identity, simultaneously being the Son of God who came down from heaven and the Son of Man who came into the world. Jesus' weeping and prayer revealed his humanity and divinity. Jesus had come on the scene with his dearly loved friends who just lost their brother. A sizable crowd also witnessed everything that took place. And it was in this moment that Jesus said the words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Once again, he told his audience exactly who he is. Jesus' fifth I am statement reveals three promised experiences to all people. I'd like to spend the last half of the message talking about these three promises. There's one negative promise, one positive promise, and then one hope-filled promise. And these are promises that we all need to hear on this Resurrection Sunday. You know, we're kind of like the children who were lined up for lunch in the cafeteria of their Christian elementary school. At the beginning of the line was a large pile of apples. You see, the cafeteria lady had written a note next to the apples that read, Take only one. God is watching. At the end of the line, there was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. Those are my favorite, by the way. One of the kids, who was obviously the head of his class, had written a note next to the cookies that read, take all you want, God is watching the apples. (laughs) A word quickly spread, and the kids were filled with hope because they knew that the large pile of cookies was waiting for them at the end of the line. This note gave them hope. Likewise, these three promised experiences give us hope. If you're taking notes, the first one that we're going to talk about is the promised experience of death. Now, that's a negative promise. We read about this in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So Jesus was talking about physical death. Now, although this is not something that we like to talk about, we all know that it's true. Since Genesis chapter 3, physical death has been a reality because death is a result of sin. In the garden, God told Adam and Eve, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, And just as each person is destined to die once, 
And after that comes judgment. So death is a universal fact. I'll borrow Bill Daly's words from his communion meditation last Sunday. Nobody makes it out of life alive. There's so much truth to that statement. Now, you may be thinking, this isn't the kind of promised experience that I want to hear about today. Or how does this give us hope? Lazarus was physically dead. And because of sin, we're all going to die someday as well. Unless Jesus returns before that happens. Physical death is a promise of the Bible. It's a promise of Jesus, and it's a fact of life. But there's also a positive promise in Jesus' statement. And that's the promised experience of resurrection. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Even in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her pain and suffering, Martha was able to state her belief that her physically dead brother would experience the resurrection at the last day. Although there will be a resurrection at the last day, Jesus was talking about God's ability to raise Lazarus from the dead in that moment. Jesus had some experience with this kind of thing. He raised the son of a widow who lived in the village of Nain. And he did this as the funeral procession was on its way to the cemetery. He raised the daughter of a local synagogue leader, Jairus, with an almost playful command. He said, little girl, get up. It's kind of like the parent who announces the end of nap time to their kids. They say, hey, it's time to get up. And the kids are excited. And then now... He raised his good friend, Lazarus, in a dramatic fashion by saying, Lazarus, come out. This event reaffirms who Jesus really is. This is also the final miracle of Jesus recorded by John in his gospel. It was given so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. Raising Lazarus from the dead ultimately sets the stage for Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. Let's think about this promised experience of resurrection for a few moments. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead as a sign of his authority and of his divinity. And the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead as a further sign of his authority, divinity, and how his work on the cross was sufficient to atone for or to cover the sins of the world, all those who believe in Jesus. Yet, Jesus' resurrection is still controversial to a lot of people today. I want to ask you the question, and this is a rhetorical question, but please think about this. What do you believe about the resurrection? J.P. Moreland, who is a well-known philosopher, theologian, and Christian apologist, gave five pieces of circumstantial evidence that convince him that Jesus rose from the dead. The first piece of evidence is that the disciples died for their beliefs. When Jesus died, the disciples went back to their fishing business, and it looked like Jesus was a fraud. But the resurrection changed things. You know, a pastor friend of mine once said that people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. But people will not die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. The disciples died for their beliefs because they were eyewitnesses to the life, death, burial, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. The second piece of evidence is the number of skeptics who were converted. 
So two of these skeptics were the Apostle Paul and then James, the brother of Jesus. Both of these men became fully devoted followers of Jesus after the resurrection. We also learn that both of them died a martyr's death. The third piece of evidence is the sudden change to key social structures. Within just a few weeks of the resurrection, around 10,000 Jews abandoned their long-held religious and social practices in order to follow Jesus. A sudden change like this requires something pretty radical, something like a resurrection. The fourth piece of evidence is communion and baptism. Now, why do these two serve as evidence to believe in the resurrection? Well, think about how crazy it would be to remember someone who suffered a cruel death by doing something that reminded you of that death. You know, it's not common practice for us to celebrate murder. First century Christians celebrated the cross because they were convinced that Jesus really did defeat death. Through baptism, a person is buried with Christ and then raised with Christ. And through communion, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, and we celebrate his victory over sin and death. The fifth piece of evidence is the emergence of the church. J.P. Morgan said, If you were a Martian looking down on the first century, would you think Christianity or the Roman Empire would survive? You probably wouldn't put your money on a ragtag group of people whose primary message was that a crucified carpenter from an obscure village, had triumphed over the grave. Yet it was so successful that today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. These are certainly not the only pieces of evidence of the resurrection. You know, the list is a long one, but they are convincing. Um, Added to these evidences are the number of lives that have been changed all over the world and the number of lives in our own church that have been changed. The resurrection of Jesus is still transforming lives. Jesus' fifth I am statement reveals the promised experience of death and the promised experience of resurrection. But there's also a hope-filled promise in this statement. And that's the promised experience of life. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I see two promises here. First, the promise of spiritual life after death. Jesus said, the one who believes in me will live. And he's talking about living spiritually, even though they die physically. Charles Spurgeon, who's often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, used to teach his student preachers about how to preach on the topic and doctrine of heaven. And he would say, when you preach on heaven, let your face brighten so people will know how wonderful heaven is. When you preach on hell, your usual face will do. (laughs) Heaven and the promise of eternity with God is something that we should think about often. If you're in Christ, even though you will die physically, you will live forever with Jesus spiritually. The second promise in Jesus' statement is the promise of life while we're still physically alive. In Christ, we have the promise of a full and meaningful life here and now. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul wrote, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So all meaning, all purpose, all joy, all hope, and all fulfillment is found through faith in Jesus. 
Paul says, Christ lives in you. That's in this life. Jesus said, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The promised experience of life here and now and eternal life is a hope-filled promise. As followers of Jesus, we are people of hope. We celebrate this promise every single day. We celebrate it every Sunday when we gather together as the body of Christ, and especially today on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus came to give us hope for this life and for the next. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 4 says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Jesus is the one who gives us this hope. When Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, Martha actually complained about the odor. It's almost like she didn't really want him to open up the tomb. Isn't it just like all of us to want Jesus to do something amazing or to use us in a meaningful way, but we don't want it to be uncomfortable or difficult? Jesus came to bring hope, and he was willing to deal with the discomfort of a dead corpse. Jesus came to bring hope, and he was willing to deal with the discomfort of the cross. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's my question for you today as you listen to our weekly podcast. Do you believe this?